0: Hello and welcome to the SocialWorldPodcast.com. Your host is Dave Niven. Today's show is sponsored by David Niven Associates.
1: Welcome, welcome to Podcast 28. I'm Dave Niven, and you're very welcome to join me again. It's been a hectic week or two, I've got to admit that, and an awful lot's gone on. I I was really fortunate to be invited to speak in Bristol at the uh, British Association of Social Workers England conference. And uh, I shared a platform with the two chief social workers, Lynn Romeo for adults and Isabel Trowler for children. Now, Lynn's been on this program before as a guest, you may remember, and I'm very pleased to say that Isabel Trowler's agreed to be on it in a few weeks' time. So that'll get the childcare perspective as well as what's happening, if you like, in the corridors of power in the Department for Education. But as well as that, it went down very well. I met so many good people, so many interesting people, some of which I'd love to bring on the program and share with you and get their experiences over to you over the next few weeks. Um, I must say, too, though, that I've also been invited to talk on the 10th of June at a conference in London at the home of the London Symphony Orchestra, actually. And that's going to be the British Association of Social Workers annual general meeting and conference. And the speakers there are really well worth listening to. There will be Sir James Munby, who's the president of the Family Division in England and Wales, and he'll be talking about reforms to the family justice system that were introduced last month. And... uh, He effectively is also going to focus on the fact that one of these changes that we're looking to is to increase the speed in which care proceedings go through the courts, increase the speed of which children can be adopted, obviously without losing any quality of assessment. But I think that's something that an awful lot of people would agree with and that I've been long waited for. Now another speaker there is going to be Edward Timson, who's the children's minister uh, Owen Jones, the social, uh, the, the, the Guardian columnist, and Ray Jones, Professor Ray Jones from Kingston University. Now, Ray is an old friend of mine, and he's written a controversial new book, The Story of Baby P, Setting the Record Straight. Now, Baby P is Baby Peter Connolly, that was subject of a, a, a tragic story. He, a baby who died at the hands of his parent, and an awful lot of, 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 Charges came against, the, law, against the, the, the authorities, against the statutory authorities about failing to do their jobs, and an awful lot of uh, column inches were written and broadcast hours were, were heard on the subject. And it became a real forensic examination of statutory services in social work, especially in this country. Now, he's going to talk there as well, and that should be fascinating. But also they're putting on several workshops and they're kind enough to invite me to give one. And I'll be talking about, I'm told, the media we love to hate. Not my title, but an interesting one. And I think we'll start a good place to start from. Um, because an awful lot of social workers and an awful lot of people in the social care profession still are pretty suspicious of, uh, of the media in all its forms, broadcast, written and social and I think it's time that we opened that door a bit further, a bit wider, or we opened the window, let some light in. Whatever analogy you want to use. So I'm looking forward to that, 10th of June in London. But back to today. My guest today is an old acquaintance of mine, who I've got an awful lot of time for. <clears throat> Names Jim Gamble. Now Jim is a senior, was a senior British police officer. But he's also the former chief executive of the Child Exploitation and Online Protection Center, which is CEOP, C-E-O-P, which today is affiliated to the Serious Organized Crime Agency. But uh, prior to that happening and in the run up to that, Jim did resign because he disagreed strongly with the Home Secretary and her decision to merge CEOP with the Organized Crime Agency and make it into the new National Crime Agency, he felt that, uh, like many other industrialized countries around the world, CIOPS should stand alone. However, prior to that, he was the Association of Chief Police Officers Lead on Child Protection and Child Trafficking, And he was the founder and he was the initial chair of the Virtual Global Task Force, which is international collaboration to make children safer online. Now, that's interesting because an awful lot of what we talk about today is about the digital world and child protection, child safety. His primary focus has been on developing effective multi-sector partnerships, uh, making people safer. Now, that's about integrating traditional best practice with cutting edge technology, and I'm totally with him on that. He recently has been appointed as an independent chair of the City and Hackney Safeguarding Children Board, and he's been doing that now for, hmm, I think, just coming up to two months. He runs his own company with a couple of partners in Belfast called Ineq. I-N-E-Q-E, and at the beginning of the interview he'll describe what that does, but they're now very well established in security, safeguarding, working with schools, I mean, quite a broad range of activity, and it's proving very successful. So I suppose without any further ado, let's get on to the show and Jim Gamble. Jim, hi. Well, look, tell us a little bit about this company that you set up uh, a few years ago, in INEC, because uh, it seems to have become very established And it seems that uh, the reputation has been terrific. So, I mean, what sort of things were you hoping it did and what's it turned into?
0: Well, I think the the name itself proves a little bit challenging. And that goes back to the immediate period uh, when I had resigned uh, over a disagreement uh, with the Home Secretary, Theresa May, around child protection and the direction of travel of SEOP. And and when I'd come out, I, I knew that I wanted to do something that retained a child protection angle. But there were a lot of options there. And when I began working with some partners to think about how we might move forward, we decided that we'd focus on creating a, a business that was about making people safer. And as we did that, uh, we began looking at three core areas that some people see as very different. The delivering specialist advice, um, actually um, delivering accredited training through Queen's University or the Institute of Leadership and Management, mm-hmm. and then how we could use our, our knowledge around technology and the programmers we have to blend technical solutions into that. So it's a long way round, really, of saying that, you know, wasn't really sure, knew it wanted to be focused on making people safer, but recognise you know, commercial realities. We needed to have a broader footprint than that. And mm-hmm. the name came about because we were looking at You know something that was intelligent, something that was innovative, something that was unique. So intelligent, innovative, and unique became unique, and um, we still struggle with people trying to get their tongue around it. But we operate really as a group of companies. So unique, safe, and secure, and deliver specialist consultancy. The safe and secure schools and colleges program that we work delivers special resource uh, to to schools and colleges. Uh, who are members, and our how-to-be-safer footprint really focuses on um, many of the online child protection issues that you would imagine uh, we'd look at.
1: Okay, lovely. Well, I mean, I I, I obviously know you more from the child protection side of things and um, the safer schools and the things, things we've talked about in the past, but just for a moment, because I want to focus on all of these things principally today, but just before we do, you also are much wider... Uh, in terms of your offering, in terms of security aren't you?
0: Well well, we are, I mean we have a, a team uh, deployed in Malawi uh, we've got um, some of our staff deploying tomorrow um, to work on the, the border of Burma supporting other much larger organizations as they um, attempt to help others who are perhaps emerging from conflict and uh, dealing with difficult uh, situations and applying some of the lessons that we've learned in a much broader sense uh, through you know, what happened in Northern Ireland uh, and elsewhere. So bringing together that form of community resilience, looking at how you can best protect the young and vulnerable mm. in the aftermath of conflict. So we do a lot of work. We've worked um, you know, in places as, as far apart as Afghanistan, uh, the United States, Canada, Uzbekistan, Pakistan uh, and Kenya. So in that sense um, there is much more once you scratch the surface going on than the straightforward mm. um, media commentary and, and child protection work.
1: Yeah no I, I just wanted to, to let people have a, have a sense of the breadth of work that Enique uh, is actually involved in doing. I mean, you mentioned a word there or you mentioned something there about how it stemmed about some of the offerings that you give. I mean you were very much part of and you' in a previous kind of work life, of um, trying to work in a a fairly fractured community in Northern Ireland and so you've got first-hand knowledge of that and I presume you draw upon that source of experience to pass that on, I expect.
0: Well, you couldn't have worked through the the period of the troubles as they're known in Northern Ireland uh, and failed to learn lessons about the importance of mutual respect, the importance of ensuring that You treat people, regardless of of sometimes your own personal views, with with dignity. I work today with people who, at one stage in my career, uh, would have been seen as as combatants, certainly people who would have had a very, very different view uh, of what I was doing in the police and who I was. Mm. And we sit around tables now where we look at how we can collaborate. You know, so beneath the headlines about... you hear in Northern Ireland at the minute of that you know re-emergence of of conflict at least between people that's not actually my experience and we sit around the table with with lots of people who were once almost sworn enemies and I think the best that comes from that is whenever we we don't look back and begin to to nitpick over you know our differences then but we look forward to see how we can collaborate and help others learn from lessons and that's where some of the work we do here um, really, really uh, engages and reflects experience when we go overseas to, to places less fortunate uh, than our own, where they're still in that stage of conflict. Uh, I think we're moving forward, and and I take pride in the fact that we we're able to collaborate across the religious divide, across the community divide, and we simply concentrate on how we can collaborate around those mutual experiences of conflict and um, to highlight to others how they might be able to move forward more quickly by avoiding some of the mistakes that we made.
1: Now, well, you seem to suggest that there's quite a strength and depth in the reconciliation process still, and even though we're seeing flashpoints recently in the media, that, that you seem to suggest that that's not really the real picture. Is that fair?
0: I, I think it is fair. We work with some fabulous organizations here, you know, and... Uh, Intercom, for example, really great grassroots people lived through the worst of it, have helped build the peace. And we work with international partners like Safer World, um, who have a footprint around the globe where they're engaging with people to help make communities safer and to empower them to build for the future. So, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff going on. And, and you know, from your own experience, it's never, never, you know, judge a situation simply from the headline. Uh, because generally, when you scratch the surface and get beneath that, there are lots of real people making real progress and building honest relationships with one another.
1: Oh, fair point. Fair point. Well, all right. Look, um, out of all of that work that Enique's doing, I feel like the different divisions of Enique, because, I mean, obviously the one that we're more interested in at the moment from a social work or a social care perspective is maybe the child protection or certainly the safer schools one even. I mean, do you want to say a little bit more about how that came about? I mean, I know it, it came from your background and your passion for the subject, but but more practically, how how's it been developing?
0: Well, the Safe and Secure Schools and Colleges programme of work really began developing piecemeal. We would have schools uh, approach us and say, look, we're trying to get a, a grasp around, you know, what social media means in schools' environments. And, and it's not just about you know, making sure that children understand uh, the risks online. It's about ensuring that teachers understand what we mean when we talk about the appropriate use of social media in the context of their employment. It's about understanding the benefits that can be accrued by appropriate engagement social media and making sure that schools are equipped in a way that they can evidence to Ofsted to help share knowledge with children so that they're better able to protect themselves so we began to build on the curriculum social media 101, how do you best understand it? So for people that aren't fluent users, aren't, you know, 14, 15 or 16 and native to the technology, how do you help them understand the best way to construct a, t- construct a tweet, the best way uh, to set up their Facebook page? And, and that surprised me because it was almost a little throwaway. We'll, we'll get this Social Media 101 course. And nearly everywhere we go, it's one of the most popular. People really do want to know how they better master the basics. And, and that led on to, you know, our our courses around appropriate use of social media and how you build an appropriate use of social media policy. And this is all about empowering schools where the staff will help develop uh, appropriate use policy, but students themselves collaborate to create their own code of conduct. So it's about that partnership, that sense of ownership we can create when we facilitate that type of work. Because I believe we come with some very credible young people on our team who help them unearth some of the, the key questions and, and, and discuss that mutual respect. And Lots of schools will say, we don't allow this, we don't allow that. Well, they're not living in the real world. In a world of 3G and 4G, where you know every child will have a smartphone in their pocket or virtually every child, that's not the way to, to do it. And the very best schools that we deal with, you know, ACS and Cobham, the Royal Hospital School um, down in, in Ipswich, they really are schools that, that grasp the opportunity to educate and empower and safeguard their young people. So the Safe and Secure Schools and Colleges built from that to the point that we now work um, for a number of schools on a routine basis and um, helping them create a digital licence. So you imagine when you're a child, you have to do your your cycling proficiency mm. we're working with some schools where actually before the children get online it's not about how they filter or block it's how they ensure that those young people understand the nature of the risks that they face and critically understand the mechanics of blocking reporting and seeking help i spoke um on internet safety day a day that i'm not particularly fond of because i think it's it's absolutely congested with loads of organizations, you know, looking for the, the sound bite. But on that day, I was lucky enough to be in, in Newcastle uh, with you and yours, and they brought together a range of young people. And I was really impressed when one 13-year-old boy said to me, look, everybody tells us about the risks, but nobody actually teaches us the mechanics, the mechanics of how do we make ourselves safer. And by understanding those mechanics, you know when to put the brake on, when to seek help, whom to seek it from. You know people talk about, you know, remember privacy online, know how to block. But that'll be something different in Ask FM than in Facebook or in Twitter. So it's understanding the specific detail about how you make yourself safer in each of those areas. A general appreciation of of privacy and safety settings, of course, that's useful. But these children use specific platforms, and what we try and do is break that down so that we almost get them ready to take a digital certificate. Well, we actually do. So in those schools that we participate with, they know that child understands their code of conduct, they've proven it in a test, and actually understands the basics around blocking and reporting. Right. Let, let's just
1: assume for a second, and I'm pretty sure you're going to say yes, okay, but let's just assume, to ask for a second um, it, it's obviously a terrific thing to, to try and make a school safe or to try and make as many pupils in there aware far more of the mechanics, as you say, and therefore the opportunities to block and the opportunities to be private at the same time as enjoying social media, because it is a phenomenal um, kind of way of communication. But are you deep down because I mean analysis has always been part of your career if you like as far as I can understand it and the different positions that you've employed, you've enjoyed. Are you optimistic um, in terms of what you're seeing happen because to my view I mean cyberbullying apparently is still as rife as, as it always has been. Is it just that it's not peaked yet? What do you think?
0: Well I am optimistic. I think we have a generation now that aren't that far off parenthood themselves who grew up with social media with Bebo. they then graduated into my space and ultimately were some of the early adopters of facebook so they have a a a fluency with social media that we didn't have you know young people grasped it they jumped in you know and they began to to swim straight away some of us were, were a little bit more fearful we were a little bit more conservative And and, and rightly so, but the young people who speak fluent social media, because they grew up with it, when they become the generation of parents, then I think we're in a much better place. Now, there are issues about cyberbullying, and and one of my great frustrations is that we are stuck at a point where we see cyberbullying, we see the terrible impact it has on young people's lives, Um, and and people are are stuck between do we deal with this as a crime or do we deal with with it as a behaviour between children? Well, I think we need to be much, much more specific. Where that behaviour escalates to the point that a child is self-harming, to the point where a child is isolated and alienated to the point that they're becoming ill, then you have to recognise bullying for what it is, criminal harassment. And it's only by making an example and setting an example in some cases that you will have a consequence to point to. And if you want to deter other children and young people from behaving in a way that is wholly inappropriate, then that consequence must be credible. If a 14-year-old boy walked up to the bus stop and punched a lady with holding her shopping bags in the face, we wouldn't say he's only a child. We wouldn't say we can't criminalize that behavior. We would deal with it, and other people would expect that to be dealt with. And in doing so, we create a deterrent to others. So it's actually about moving away from the seduction of technology that embraced most of us You know, we were seduced by it when it came because we thought, wow, this is fantastic. It's a labyrinth of technology. You know, I'm lucky to have a computer, but I could never build one. You don't need to build a car to know how to drive it. You don't need to be able to to build that vehicle to understand the rules of the road. And we need to get to the point where we stop focusing on the technology and actually begin doing what human beings have been best at, focusing on behavior and how we moderate one another's behavior to make a society civilized.
1: Yeah. Now you you're aware of the fact too that obviously, as you know, that I I also do quite a few lectures and talks about um, the social media, and one I did recently, and this would, this is what the question is for you. I, I did it with a professor from the Ukraine, and it was at um, a, a British East European event in London, and. His description of issues to do with cyberbullying in the Ukraine and Kiev, it's where he was from, were so spookily familiar. You know, I, I wonder, and to me, and you know, and it brought home how universal and how uh, mimicked the, the, the whole rollout, if you like, of, of social media has been and, and the, the downside as well. Do you find this going around the world that you're finding kind of an awful lot of parallels now because essentially communication is shrinking the world?
0: Well, David, you and I have collaborated in, in so many areas and so many pieces of work that, you know, this is a discussion that that, that I can recall us having before. Mm-hmm. Of course, there are parallels. Social media has made the world much smaller. Thereby, it's created opportunities for our young people that we could never have dreamed of. If, if you know, social media represents 100%, the risk is in the three or four percent. But the risk is significant and serious. But the opportunity is fantastic. And the more we collaborate across borders, I believe the safer we will be. That's why, b- what my back, you know, at the very beginning of my my time, ending rather in the National Crime Squad and beginning in the Child Exploitation Online Protection Center, we created the Virtual Global Task Force, bringing together Canadians, Americans, United Arab Emirates, the Australians, you know, Interpol, Europol, and many, many others, so that our footprint, from a law enforcement point of view, could mirror the geography. Mm-hmm. That, the, that the threat occupied. And I, one of my you know, greatest sadnesses is that I don't think the early success that we had in that has been accelerated. And, and being the chair, uh, the independent chair of the city and Hackney Safeguarding Children Board, I never feel um, to, to really be in awe of the work that social workers do in the front line, dealing with the reality of this converged environment where children will be on the street one day subject to child sexual exploitation and the next have images taken of them that are shared online by either sexting, texting yeah. or being uploaded. And, and I, I, it really, really frustrates me that this government, at a time when we've got so many people trying to do the right thing, have done the wrong thing by turning left rather than right and focusing on technology and the technology giants. I mean, the battle with Google you know, in the aftermath of the murder of April Jones and Tia Sharp mm. was nonsensical. And I think we've got to get to the point where people realize attacking Google is like attacking the postman because he's delivered a letter you don't like. If there's something in that letter that is offensive, that is hurtful or harmful, you need to get the person who sent it. And and the lessons I've learned, you know, during my time in Northern Ireland, during my time in the National Crime Squad, as we began to come to terms with with Operation Orr and defences against children involving the internet during the build and development of SEOP and, and, and more recently as an independent chair of a safeguarding board is this, it's all about people. It's all about understanding why people do what they do when they do it and you are not going to accelerate you know, the, the safeguarding community to a better place by focusing on technology.
1: couldn't agree more uh, ex- with one caveat that I think you will agree with I, I mean, we've had conversations about this in the past, and then you, you know that one of my kind of things that I'm passionate about is banging on is, um, is identification of victims. And, and I gathered recently that uh, another quite substantive ch- chunk of money has come from UNICEF to three countries. One of them, strangely, I don't know why I say that, but strangely being Iceland, to further look at um, development of technology to begin to identify uh, victims from images because you as better than anybody probably realize the fact that it, law enforcement can be getting better at capturing people and catching criminals, but because there's so much material that's seized as well that actually shows children usually being exploited, um, there's not huge advances in technology in terms of actually the uh, looking at these images and, and able to, to try and identify where they are. Is the child still being abused? Can we interrupt it? And so anything towards that technology,
0: I imagine you'd agree with. Of course. I mean, when I talk about attacking technology, I mean, you know, attacking, you know, organisations like Google. Using technology positively, of course, that's a great tool. But the problem is this. You have to have human resource behind it. We worked for years with the Victim Identification Unit in Mm SEOP. Now, I can tell you last year, certainly from a report by the NSPCC, There were 26 million images sitting on the shelves of five police forces alone in the UK that weren't being interrogated and examined to identify, locate and rescue the children in them. Now, that is shameful. And while we fight about what we filter, you know, by default and what parents filter by choice, no one is looking for those children. So don't get me wrong. Technology, where tech, tech, technology is an aid to identify, locate, and hold predators to account, I love it. Um, the, the former chief executive CEO Peter Davis said to us last year that between fifty and sixty thousand people are downloading indecent images in this country at any one time. He knew that from a technology that began with peer precision. So we know fifty to sixty thousand are downloading. We know millions of images are sitting on shelves. Yet we have these hypothetical debates about how we can get industry to do more, when at the end of the day, the more we identify, the more need there is for human resource to go out, rescue the children and arrest and hold these predators to account. And and everything that happens, everything that I hear in this government is about hiding the problems behind the cloak of austerity and actually you know, targeting the headline which is simple on the day to get them through that day so they get to the next. And as we approach the election, I think we're going to see lots of of you know, flagship initiatives that sound very good on the surface, but actually, when you scratch that surface, mean absolutely nothing or next to nothing when well, it comes to child protection.
1: Always been the way, hasn't it, Jim? There's always been sort of nine, uh, you know, nine for every other one that was um, that was actually seen through and useful. It's politics, isn't it?
0: Well, I think it is. But I mean, to be to to be fair, let me let me turn it round and say, you know. As the chair of a a safeguarding board, I think some of the things the government have done around a review of working together, uh, around Ofsted's approach and expectations, Mm. around local safeguarding boards and and their partnerships, I think that's all very positive. That's about ensuring a greater level of independence, ensuring that boards can evidence the level of independent scrutiny that they're applying to ensure the better coordination and more efficient use of those, those resources as they collaborate to make children safer. I just think that once you add that layer of complexity that, that people think comes with technology, people's eyes glaze over and they look for the simple solution. And I think the government have done that. Um, so when it comes to some other areas, I think they're, they're doing a good job and have done, not least around working together. But once you step into the, the blended area of technology and child protection, I don't think they've got a clue.
1: Well. I- let me steer you towards a couple of final things. I mean, firstly, you mentioned earlier social workers and how now when you're chairing the, that safeguarding board, how it's, you know, you're seeing what they do as much as anything and you have a certain um, a certain understanding for their position as much as anybody else's, and I think that's fair enough. But I was giving a, a talk the other day myself, and um, there, you're probably aware that there's an increase around, certainly in England and Wales, I don't know about Northern Ireland, but it might be the same, for... Um, social services departments to begin to uh, look for intelligence and specifically seek out social media presences of families considered to be vulnerable or where there's a somebody at risk. Um, and that often wasn't the case, it used to be the case that it was just law enforcement that might do something like that. How do you feel about that being kind of shared rather than a specific law enforcement task?
0: Well I think law enforcement only look when they're seeking out uh, evidence that gives them you know, reasonable grounds to believe a criminal offence may have been committed. I absolutely welcome any approach which sees social workers step over the virtual or real threshold of the homes in which families live who are dealing with complex problems. I recently read the, the very good NSPCC overview report uh, of serious case reviews linked to uh, neglect and maltreatment and there is no doubt having read that I am of the absolute firm view The children must be seen, heard, and helped. They must be seen in the context of their home, in the context of their lives, including their social media lives, in the context of education and health. We must take time to actually listen to them and to test ourselves as to whether or not we've heard them. And we need to be asking ourselves in social care every time we engage with a child, did I hear them and have I helped them? If so, what have I done and what else could I do? So I think anything that, that opens our eyes wider, I mean, the social work community, they, they deal with, with the best and the worst of it. And the one thing they can be sure of is that when something goes wrong, people will seek to point the finger of blame. And you were one of the most senior social workers in the country, so you know this as well as anyone. The one thing you can be sure of, whether you're a social worker or a teacher for that matter, when things go wrong, it doesn't matter that some parents have outsourced their parenting responsibility, Mm -hmm. and whether it's neglect through affluence by throwing a laptop at a child that you can't actually take time to engage with. Mm -hmm. There are multiple issues that we face, and the more social workers that engage and understand the public spaces that children and families now occupy, the better, absolutely the better.
1: It is definitely a place where the same weaknesses are displayed and the same frailties from parenting is displayed. I've often found this, I mean... You will remember because we were at a conference together there where the um, Facebook representative admitted to 82 million false accounts in Facebook uh, around the world and also admitted that uh, he was convinced that thousands, if not more, more than one single thousand, maybe tens of thousands of parents falsify the ages of their child in order to let them have uh, an account on Facebook. And to my mind, as I've always said, that's the equivalent of giving a 10-year-old a packet of cigarettes or whatever. So um, there is an awful lot of um, failure out there as far as I'm concerned when it comes to, to parenting in the virtual world as well as, if you like, in the, um, the real world. So I, I, I just want to finish up, Jim, by asking a wee bit about your vision of the future. Partly maybe to do with technology because we seem to have focused on that and that does seem to be hugely prominent. Whether it's particular developments that will be coming online soon to help people and especially vulnerable people. Whether it's um, smart houses being coming even better so that we can live at home longer or apps designed for people leaving care that will give them the whole panoply of what they need or whether it's um, specifics for the visually impaired that will give them fantastic information about what's right in front of them, almost as if they had full vision. You know, all sorts of different apps, and pe- maybe social workers using this, using Skype to visit people instead of um, actually physically having a go around. I've got my doubts about that one, but whatever. You know, the developments. I just wondered what, finally, because remember, too, this is being heard in over 50 countries and of course, so we've got a panoply out there of, of cultures and we're so welcome for it and different arrangements for, for, for protection of children and vulnerable adults. But uh, what would your final kind of vision be, do you think?
0: My vision is for a future where we master technology, but we're not mastered or driven by that technology. I was in South Africa uh, working at Potchestrum near Johannesburg on a child trafficking and child exploitation initiative and there are young people getting access to learning platforms who could never have dreamed of getting that type of access before because of technology. You know technology of itself is is at best an unbelievably powerful tool and at worst neutral, at worst neutral. It's how people use it and if you think back to the technology when people couldn't see and they had no hope of that and glasses were invented, using those in the appropriate way meant that people were able to review the world and see the world in a way they couldn't have hoped of. That's what we've got to do. We've got to take the best from technology. We want to make sure that protection, child protection professionals and others safeguarding the adult community have the information they need, where they need it, when they need it in their pocket. We've just built an app paid for by the Department of Education uh, and and the content developed by Children and Families Across Borders for FGM, female genital mutilation. Mm -hmm. If you need information, you need it in your pocket. If you were at the Olympics in 2012, we'd built the app there, paid for by Comic Relief. Again, the content provided by Children and Families Across Borders, where if you wanted to get information, it was in your back pocket. And if you think about the, the guidelines on child trafficking, they're about 27 pages. But working with social workers and others in the field, we distilled that to a mnemonic on an app that you knew you needed if you suspected that a child may have been trafficked to consider movement, presentation, health, consider the relationship with the person that presented with them, any evidence of exploitation, and critically within that app, the do's and don'ts. So technology, when it's mastered by us, when it's created and delivered to the right people by us is a fantastic thing. And I see a future where all of that is fused, where we're able to empower people who have particular needs, special needs, to operate in a more level environment where they can benefit from these opportunities, but where we can protect them. You know, 33% of people with learning difficulty are more likely to be bullied online, 16% are much more likely to be persistently bullied. What we need to do is make sure we put the right technology in the hands of the right people, good people, and I believe that's the safeguarding community. I've never ever met, I've never met someone who's worked in safeguarding for over a sustained period of time who didn't actually care about the people they go in every day to protect. No, yeah.
1: Quite true Jim, thank you very much indeed. Um, I presume that any of the initiatives you've mentioned can be found via your website which is if you'd just like to say it again maybe?
0: Yes if you want to visit the website www.ineque.com, that's I-N-E-Q-E and if you do visit the website click on the safety centre icon because that will take you to a safety center where we've built very, very simple media. With one click in seven seconds, you can learn how to block on, on Facebook. If you're using uh, an Android app, you can learn how to block, you know, whilst you're in the Android app, on Snapchat or Ask FM, And we keep that up to date. So if you haven't heard of Yik Yak and the fact that it's one of the new anonymous apps, which is now proliferating through schools and being used to bully, click on the website, Not only will you learn about it, but you'll actually learn how to report from it if you're threatened by someone.
1: Jim Gamble, as always, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that was mainly it for the day, Podcast 28. It goes so quickly. But many, many thanks to Jim Gamble for uh, his time today. Um, I hope you check him out. I hope you have a look at what he's doing. And uh, I'm certainly looking forward to doing some work with them again in the future. Now, if you enjoyed this, uh, if it was helpful to you, if you like listening, tell your friends and colleagues. Um, and we need some feedback, some more feedback. Keep it coming. We get some, but we need some more. Uh, whether you leave reviews on iTunes or whether you do it on SpeakPipe, which is that one-click service just beside the blogs and the podcasts. Just leave a voice message. And uh, if appropriate, I'll I'll put it out on the next uh, podcast. This has got to be an interactive show. There's so many of you listening already. I'm really pleased, and I do believe now we can claim to be the number one social work podcast in the uh, in the British Isles. So, Speakpipe, iTunes, Podfeed. Um, Do remember that uh, Twitter is at Dave Niven. So you can leave me some messages there or you can interact, have a conversation with us online. I really appreciate your listening. I really would love your feedback and look forward to the next week's podcast. Take care. Speak to you then.